Welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health, brought to you in partnership with the Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we are committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we are bringing the doctors to you. I'm your host, Matt Dusick, and joining me is Dr. Lita Turner, the Medical Director of Ambulatory Psychiatry at Providence Swedish in the Seattle area. Today, we're discussing the concept of knowing versus doing, and how that relates to a healthy lifestyle and how this can be affected by mental health. Hi, hey, Dr. Turner. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Hello, and thank you for having me. I know this is going to be a great conversation, but before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you do at Providence Swedish? Sure. So as you said, I am I'm the medical director of ambulatory psychiatry at Swedish. Um, what that means is, is I'm a medical director of two different teams, the women's reproductive uh, psychiatry team and the ambulatory consultation psychiatry team. And I work clinically on the ambulatory clinical team. Um, we see folks in primary care. We work with primary care doctors and their patients to make sure that they have the care that they need. Well, thanks for that background. So today we're discussing, I think, a fascinating topic. We're discussing the concept of knowing versus doing. So when it relates to our health, we might know what we're supposed to do to lead a healthy lifestyle. But we don't necessarily do those things that allow us to be healthier. I think we can talk about smoking, we can talk about our diets, we can talk about exercise. There's so many different categories where this applies. So talk to us a little bit about why this might be. Why is there such a gap between knowing what you should be doing and actually doing it? That's the hard part. <laughs> um, so this, this really can affect anyone, regardless of, of a diagnosis or mental health status. Um, sometimes it's a matter of, of, of not knowing where to start. So we have an ultimate goal in mind, but finding that first step is really difficult. Sometimes we know the first step, but there are barriers to it. So we can you know, fall into all or nothing thinking about this. If I can't make this change, then it's pointless to do any change. Um, the, many of us grew up with a what, what's called a fixed mindset um, versus a growth mindset. So not achieving something easily or on the first try can really feel like a devastating failure instead of a learning opportunity. So that can make these changes harder when it's not easy. So when we don't see progress, when we don't see, when we can't just hop on that treadmill and run two, three miles, and it you know it's a lot harder than it looks, um, that that can be frustrating and cause people to quit and to not make those changes that, that, that they need to make. Um, and also when dealing with mental health issues, something like depression, our executive functioning is even worse. So it amplifies the, uh, the difficulty in making decisions and it amplifies that whole reducing the barriers to getting or, or deciding on what that first step is. I see. Can you maybe expand a little bit more about a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset? Those are interesting terms. Uh, absolutely. So within the growth mindset, so this is looking at everything as a learning opportunity or um, a time to reflect rather than um, looking at things as a failure or a success. So 
you know, achievements are just that it's, it's, um, they're not necessarily a success, it's a step in the right direction that you're trying to go to, uh, but you can always learn from that sort of thing. And you can learn just as much from not doing something correctly or, um, you know, what we'd say, quote, failing. You can learn from that uh, and in a fixed mindset. That sort of thing is not the case. It's, it's either I'm smart or I'm dumb, either I'm fast or I'm slow. Um, and there's nothing in between those things. It's not, oh, you know what? I am the slowest person today, but I am practicing and here's what I'm doing. And every day I am getting faster and I'm comparing myself to myself rather than to other people. I'm growing. Got it. So I, I personally feel like I know lots of people who say that they're their own worst enemy when it comes to their health. And it does seem like we probably sabotage ourselves at times. Why do you think this happens? Well, um, sabotaging is, is easy to do. <laughs> we fall back into comforting habits. Um, when we are struggling with anything, with um, illness, with stressors, with things, it's, it's easy to fall back onto habits that we've always done, things that are comforting and not always the healthiest things. So, so we can sabotage any growth by allowing setbacks to kind of put us back at the beginning and then staying there. And that's that happens. We can have setbacks, we can do that, but we constantly want to be trying to go forward with what, what we need to be doing. And so trying again, again, going back to that fixed versus growth mindset sort of thing, it's, it's not a failure. It's something where what happened here and how do I plan for that in the future? You traveled for work and you fell up, you know, you stopped uh, going to exercising. Why was that? And then it was harder to start that routine when you got home. Looking at that, if you're going to travel for work a lot, okay, I, I recognize that this is something that I'm going to sabotage myself with because I fall off of this pattern of, of doing and have to restart it. So how do I do this? Um, and planning for that and um, coming up with different ways of reducing those barriers and, and things like that. So using the hotel uh, gym or, you know, again, doing yoga in the room, stretching, it can be as simple as that. It doesn't have to be anything big, but we self-sabotage a lot just because it can be very easy to do. And we haven't developed, uh, you know, the, the strength and the routine that needs to be there to kind of um, prevent that easiness of sabotaging. So it sounds like we can differentiate a little bit between a hiccup in a routine. Maybe we have that dessert when we go out with friends for dinner versus falling back into those bad habits or those harmful routines. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and, you know, that, I think the, that example is perfect. It's okay to have dessert um, occasionally there, there's nothing really inherently bad about having dessert. It, that that's kind of a judgment. It's the, it's the routineness of doing so. If you're having more sweets than, than you should every day, uh, then that can become unhealthy. Um, if you are, you know, indulging occasionally, that's fine. We all, you know, those treats are, are there for a reason. Um, and, and for that reason, I, I don't like using the word cheat day. Cheat day is a terrible um, thing because it's, it's, you're not cheating. Um, <laughs> it's okay to have those things. Uh, uh, and it, it's an and instead of a none, you know, you, you can do that and still be healthy. Um, and um, yeah, it, it, hiccups and things like that, totally fine. It's the pattern of kind of going back that can be problematic. And again, no one's perfect. So it, 
as long as we keep trying to get back onto the routine of, of you know, going towards health, that's good. Is there a way to reframe cheat days into something maybe a little bit more positive? <laughs> oh, I'm sure there are. Um, <laughs> it, the, I, I follow The Rock on Instagram, and um, he always shows his his cheat his quote cheat days are, are pretty uh, amazing. Um, but it's you know thinking about it as um, as a treat. It, you know we don't want to necessarily think of it as a reward for good behavior either, because then you get into this this pattern of thinking. Well, I did something. Now I deserve to have this other thing, and it's you never didn't deserve to have dessert. You can always have or, or, or these, you know, whatever they might be. You can have them because you want them, and that's okay. Um, so, so reframing it as I'm just going to do this, um, rather than I plan on having a cheat day or this is, you know, I'm doing all this good work, so I deserve to have that. That can build up into something kind of like an ugly monster, and you just want to try to separate those things um, and kind of reframe it as I want it and, and I can have that. That's fine. That's a great perspective. I think on the other side of the coin, most of us have some people in our lives, friends or family that have amazing self-control. They never miss a day at the gym. They are always eating healthy. And, and sometimes people with great self-control might say that others lack discipline or they indulge in bad habits. Is that the case or, or could there be something more serious going on than just bad habits that can be changed? Uh, there definitely can be other things going on. And, and I would say that for the folks who we see in our lives that are you know, doing these things where they're always eating healthy, where they're always, they've likely been doing that for a very long time. Um, they're not just suddenly gonna be there. So <laughs> the, the self-control isn't necessarily self-control, it's a development of a very strong routine. Um, and I think when we look at different things that we do that may be unhealthy habits or that sort of thing, you have to also look at the environment. Um, so, you know, you could have really good self-control. However, if, you know, things like a good example right now would be being on social media. So some people can hop on social media, be on there for two, three, you know, five minutes, just check in, kind of see what headlines are and then leave. And some people start doom scrolling and they're on there for hours and um, they have a harder time leaving. Well, the nefarious part of that is that people make a lot of money in the, in the social media industry to keep you engaged, to keep you clicking, to keep you on their platform. So you might have really great self-control, but there's a lot of people and the environment around you that's going to make it very difficult for you to stop doing that. It's, it's designed to keep you doing that. So looking at the environment and, and breaking out of that environment can be very helpful um, to kind of helping aid that self-control. Um, but yeah, so we have to look at everything. It's not just the person, it's the environment, it's the people around them, it's the other things adding to that, that I think, um, you know, can cause a, a more difficult time kind of engaging in unhealthy behaviors and habits. Wow, Dr. Turner, those are all really good points. And I, I love the way you put self-control as being the development of a very strong routine. I think that, that that's a really helpful way to look at things. Um, so it seems as though, you know, a society or healthcare system, it seems as though we put a lot of resources into educating people on healthy habits. But it doesn't seem as though we provide the same level of support around actually building those habits. So first of all, do you agree with that statement? 
And then second, where should we be investing our time and resources to get the best results? I would agree with that statement, unfortunately. Um, and I see it a lot when I have uh, patients in front of me and they're asking me what they need to be doing. And, um, you know, I will I'll make recommendations to go see a massage therapist, go to acupuncture, um, you know, uh, possibly see a, a nutritionist, that sort of thing. And I can refer for some of these things, um, but not all. And so patients are on their own to kind of find people that work for them. And, and it's, it can be hard to find people. Um, therapists, for example, very difficult to find on your own. And I, even myself, I have a hard time telling people specific recommendations for that sort of thing. Um, so I think we can make a lot of recommendations for people, um, but it is there's a lack of resources to, to do those things um, or be able to engage in those things. And then there's the barrier of, you know, the finances, the underinsured, the and even if well-insured insurance still might not cover things. So there's there's, I think, a lot out there that we're missing and, and it's making it harder for patients to do the things that we recommend. Yeah, I would agree. And, and certainly there are very real barriers that prevent people from seeking care. Um, but let's let's talk about, you know, aside from routine care that may have been delayed during the pandemic, and we know that that was a reality. We also know that some people, they just don't go in for their regular checkups. They don't go in for their regular screenings, even when they know that's what, what they should be doing. And, and in, in some ways they would be capable of doing that. What do you think is the biggest reason why people don't go to the doctor? Well, I think think that's hard to to narrow down to a single reason. And I think it's important, you know, in this case to point out that there are communities who have been affected by, you know, different things in the medical realm differently. So we know that there's, you know, a sad history in medicine um, that created distrust of the medical field in communities of color, um, that there are concerns a lot of times about uh, weight-based bias. So people who are afraid of being judged based on their weight um, won't come in. And, you know, women, especially women of color, having concerns dismissed. So those sorts of things can play into why people might not go to the doctor. Um, so that's more of a societal and systemic issue that is being worked on. Um, and, you know, and then adding into that the financial strain, underinsured, you know, these things, there's lots of systemic issues as to why people might not go to the doctor. Um, from the patient perspective, other than those things, I would say that, you know, I think that there's, there's fear, there's worry, um, and then also kind of basic under prioritization, um, of things. So they might not think it's important. They might not feel that, you know, this one concern, I don't, I'm, I'm overall healthy or everyone around me is fine. So why should I go to the doctor and be told that these things, I, I don't need that, you know? So I think there's a lot of different things that play into why folks might not go to the doctor, but it's, you know, I think there's the individual level and then there's the systemic stuff. Yeah, it's certainly a complex issue. And thank you for, for at least helping to unravel a little bit of it. Uh, we've heard the term sometimes white coat syndrome. What is white coat syndrome and, and you know, is it a serious issue? And, and maybe what can people do to overcome this? Um, so white coat syndrome, um, white coat hypertension uh, happens when folks come into the doctor's office and you have a higher blood pressure than you would regularly. Um, and this can be, you know, for many reasons, you can be more stressed out being at the doctor, worry about what they might say, um, or simply getting your blood pressure taken 
too soon after sitting down, that sort of thing. So you can just have um, higher blood pressure. Um, and you know you can advocate for getting your vitals done at the end of a visit when you might be a little bit more calm when things are kind of done with when you've been sitting there for a while um, and also taking your blood pressure at home um, when you're comfortable and able to kind of relax um, that is when you can get you know looks for what your actual baseline blood pressure is and, and usually white coat hypertension isn't a concern it's it's something that's known especially if you're able to kind of say this is my normal blood pressure at home when I'm at rest, um, you know, you can compare those things and, and we can look at those. Well, thanks for that. So right now it just feels as though we live in such an age of information and there's just so much health information that's available within seconds through all sorts of different search engines and other uh, sources of information. So. What advice do you have for people who feel overwhelmed with all the health information out there and really not knowing which sources to trust? I mean, does, does too much information sort of create its own barrier to developing a healthier lifestyle? It absolutely can. Um, there, there's a lot of misinformation out there. I mean, the internet is, is a vast, a vast internet of things, right? That's just, everything is out there. So there's a lot of misinformation. There's also a lot of anecdotal, incomplete information. So, you know, people will put on blog posts about what their experience was with XYZ, which can be very truthful for that individual, but may not apply to everybody. Um, and I always, you know, advise looking at the source of the information and what bias they may have and, and why are they sharing the information. Um, things, you know, media sources, celebrity, medical persons, influencers, uh, they could be trying to sell you something. And, you know, um, Dr. Oz is one is, is kind of a, a good example where they, I think he had multiple different times where it's like, this is the pill that will cure everything. And, you know, there are several different pills. <laughs> so, you know, which one is it? Um, but, you know, wondering what it is that's going on. Why are they sharing the information? That's kind of a good uh, critical thinking skill um, to, to utilize. Um, Locally, I advise um, folks to look at information from trusted places. So, it, you know, things that Providence puts out, things that Swedish puts out here in Seattle, University of Washington, um, and then also kind of county health organizations. So that information, I would say, is usually more complete and more applicable to the whole rather than looking at blog posts and, and different you know, things that are put out by the media or celebrity medical persons, just because, you know, that might not be as um unbiased as one might think. Okay. So let's say that, that we've gotten people to the doctor. They've, they've seen their primary care physician, which everybody should do. For those who have gone to the doctor and now they've been told they need to change their lifestyle to prevent some sort of serious health condition, like a heart attack or diabetes, what do you think makes them not listen to that advice? Is it a form of denial? Are they overwhelmed? What are some of the maybe mental or emotional processes that are happening that make them ignore medical advice, especially when it comes to prevention and wellness? Sure. Well, you know, I think that there are a lot of layers there. And I think looking at the two different perspectives here, um, you know, especially things like weight based bias, <clears throat> patients might feel dismissed if their first point of contact with a doctor is being told to, to simply lose weight as part of their kind of preventative health. 
And so we as physicians really need to work on our delivery of advice. So when a patient feels dismissed, they're likely going to dismiss everything that we have to say because we haven't listened or we haven't, you know, we're, we're biased. So our information is incorrect. They, they might attribute that. Um, so we need to kind of be aware of our biases and, and aware of how we deliver this advice. So instead of, you know, losing weight, we need to be saying things like, do we need to just increase the amount of move minutes? Do we need to increase cardiovascular health? Like, what is it that we're looking at? Why are we trying to prioritize different things? Um, for patients, um, you know, other than that, it's, it's overwhelm definitely plays a part in this. And, um, you know, especially if it's a sudden, if it's a shock to them, if they're unaware that these are the things that need to happen, and all of a sudden they've been told, you know, they have something, some chronic illness that they need to be making major changes for that sort of thing, they may not be able to comprehend and take in all that information in one visit. And sometimes what winds up happening is, is you have the one visit and you're told to do all these things and then you follow up in, in six months and you may not have processed all those things. So, so a lot of stuff may have fallen by the wayside. So it looks like someone's not doing something, but they just didn't hear it or they didn't understand it. Um, so I would encourage, you know, asking questions and making sure you understand, you know, why are these recommendations, the recommendations, are they prioritized over other things? Um, but recognizing that there's overwhelm um, and not understanding the entirety of, of the risks of not doing these things, they can be just dismissive. And I think you touched upon a pretty important point earlier, which is, you know, for people who want to improve their health, there, there are ways you can measure success other than just the numbers on the scale, right? Absolutely. It, it be more than just weight. So what are some of those other things? Um, so, you know, how you feel, how, you know, your mood, everything, this is what we can look for when we're going towards health. So our mood, our energy, our sleep in general, how we feel when we engage in healthy activities, engaging with others, getting outside, eating nutritiously and exercise, we usually start to feel better. Our mood doesn't dip as, as much. We have more energy. Our sleep is better in general. Yeah, we just start to feel better. Um, so, you know, that sort of thing, looking at those things and kind of paying attention to those things, um, it's just important. The numbers on the scale don't necessarily mean anything. Um, it's, you know, how strong do you feel or, or you know, are you able to do more than today than you were able to do two weeks ago? That sort of thing, just building up and kind of looking at how far you've come and and where you can go from there. Yeah, that's great advice. And and this episode is about right knowing versus doing. So let's say that somebody has the knowing part down. That is, they have the right information and they understand what they need to do. When you come across people with those it's called the mental barriers to the doing part. How do you help them? What do you suggest? Um, so kind of going back to the idea that anything counts. Um, you know, if, it, if exercise is the goal, if you have time for five to 10 minute walk, do that. You don't have to have um, an hour of time. So starting small and building on that. Um, you know, the things that you can do within your day, um, like, you know, taking the stairs, parking further away, meal prepping, um, and, you know, just engaging with others, being social, all these little things, they all count towards our health and um, helping us. So for the the hard part about doing, you know, and, and, and you have all the things you need, 
you know, you quote should do again, we want to avoid shoulding on ourselves, but um, that sort of thing is, is just kind of taking baby steps towards them, towards those goals. Um, I also would say that being around other people who are motivated and doing the things that you want to be doing, engage with those people, be with them more. Um, so if you have a friend who enjoys, um, you know, uh, yoga and you want to get into that, go with them. You know, that helps you develop that routine because you're basing your routine off of their routine. So they're already doing the mental exercise for you. They already found a class. They already found an instructor. They already found the time. All you have to do is join your friend. Um, so utilizing others can be helpful. So it's inevitable that at some point we hear, I don't have time. And I imagine you hear that quite a bit in your practice. And the reality is that most people have very busy lives and schedules. So what tips do you have for people that are struggling with time constraints when it comes to eating better and exercising in order to improve their health? So this is a, it's a cycle. Uh, and it's an important cycle to break. So um, if we are constantly running on empty, um, we are going to be less effective and less efficient. And so our days become longer. If we are staying up later to do things and sleeping less, our day is going to continue to be long because our cognitive function is not as great. Um, I can tell you that I often feel like I don't have time, but if I get eight hours of sleep the night before a long clinic day, I can bust that clinic day out and be done when I'm supposed to be done and then have time to go for a run or to actually prepare a meal instead of eating out, um, take the dog for a walk, that sort of thing. And if I don't, if I wind up sleeping, you know, four to six hours because I was up late doing something, feeling like I, oh, I can do this and then I'll just sleep less and then I can get more done. I don't get as much done. My clinic day might stretch into the well into the late evening and then I don't have time to do any of these other things. So they're all linked together um, and healthy behaviors and habits definitely support us when we're trying to be efficient and effective of what else, whatever else we need to be doing. Um, I think it's important to, to know that, you know, again, small things start small, the five to 10 minute walk, doing some stretching. You know, if you're trying to uh, do something through the lunch hour, instead of taking a break, that investment of, of energy is actually not an investment, right? It's you're, you're taking away from what you could be doing at three o'clock. You're not, you're going to have a dip eventually. And, you know, so we want to make sure that we are treating our body as the, Kind of the machine it is it needs to have the, the reboot time it needs to have the fuel and it needs to you know uh, experience other things so that it's not our minds aren't dull and we're not being ineffective well thank you for that you know you mentioned earlier sort of uh, you touched upon the engaging nature of social media and i i often wonder you know are there ways that we can make doing the right thing for our, our bodies and our minds as engaging and dare I say, as, as addicting as social media. I mean, how, how do we make doing the right thing as, um, as addictive as the apps on our phones or our social media platforms? Mm -hmm. The, well, so having people around you doing the things that you want to be doing. So engaging again, having that friend set that will do the other healthy behaviors and kind of take that, um, that work off of your shoulders. That's a big one. So the environment around you, um, 
and finding the things that you'd like to do. So, you know, when we talk about exercise, people always assume that you have to go for, you know, multi-mile run or do X, Y, Z. There are so many different forums that, um, you know, you just have to find the right one. It's like a therapist. You have to find the right fit. And, and the more fun it becomes, uh, the easier it becomes for you to continue to do it. Um, you know, there might be an, an instructor that you love to work with, uh, that, you know, an exercise class, go to their classes instead of the other classes, because you might not get as much out of it, that sort of thing, finding the right fit. So again, the people around you, the environment, and um, finding the things that you find fun to do, instead of trying to slog through something you think is the way that has to happen. There's a lot of different options out there. Got it. Well, we've covered a lot of ground today. Is there anything else you want to make sure that we cover that we haven't already discussed? I, I think it's important, you know, again, uh, no one's perfect. Um, and we constantly have goals that are shifting and to be okay with the shifting goals. Um, and, and, you know, as we age, uh, as after injury or, or just changes in life, uh, things that we used to do might not be the things that we can continue to do. And so we always have to find different ways to um, continue on our health journey. And, and that is something that can either knock you down or, or you can kind of grow from it. And I would just encourage people to, to work on that flexibility and kind of take that in stride and, and keep working on their, on their health journey. I hope everybody takes that to heart. It's such good advice and it's, it's so important that we take care of ourselves. Uh, well, thank you, Dr. Turner. Uh, really appreciate you joining today. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us today on this important topic on Heart Matters. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on heart health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Make sure you listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform and follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, go to Providence.org. And for more information on Boston Scientific, visit bostonscientific.com. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.